137,000 thoughts in a single day. Over 17 million a year and over 1 billion in a lifetime. That's, That's hundreds of millions million of questions, questions in a year in life. Of those questions, of these those three questions, resound. These three resound. Who am I? Who am Why, am I, am, I Why am, I am I here? Where do we come from? These three questions led to an even bigger question. These three question. questions lead to an even bigger question. These three questions led to an even bigger question. A question that answers all questions. A question that answers all questions. All questions. Do we know who? Do, do, do you know who? No, no. The Bible says my king is the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder do you know him? My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleans the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he beautifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's a key to knowledge. He's a well-trained of wisdom. He's a doorway of deliverance. He's a pathway of peace. He's a roadway of righteousness. He's a highway of holiness. He's a gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. And his yoke is easy. And his word is lighter. I wish I could describe him. For yet he's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. Do you know him? 
I can't think of any other question that I could ask you this morning which is more important than that question. Do you know Jesus Christ? Because every single aspect of our lives, every moment of this life and the next for all of eternity is profoundly affected by the answer to that question. Do you know him? In fact, answering that one question is so incomparably important that many of the greatest minds in all of human history considered it the only question that truly mattered. We read this quote from the early church, Father Ignatius, a few weeks ago, but I think it bears repeating. Just as he was condemned to death in Rome around A.D. 110 before being led to the Colosseum where he knew he was about to be torn apart by lions for his testimony to knowing the Christ, he wrote these words. It is not that I want merely to be called a Christian, but actually to be one. Yes, if I prove to be one by being faithful to the end, then I can have the name. Come fire, cross, battling with wild beasts, wrenching of bones, mangling of limbs, crushing of my whole body, cruel tortures of the devil, only let me get to Jesus Christ. You see, for Ignatius, even a violent death was a small price to pay if he could but truly know Jesus Christ. And that yearning to know God is present in every human soul, but sometimes because of our own hubris, our own arrogance, even our own ignorance, we, we search sometimes in vain to fill that void with everything but Christ, and yet he is the only remedy. He's the only satisfaction for what ails the human race. A.W. Tozer once wrote, the yearning to know what cannot be known, to comprehend the incomprehensible, to touch and taste the unapproachable, arises from the image of God in the nature of man. Deep calleth unto deep. And though polluted and landlocked by the mighty disaster theologians call the fall, the soul senses its origin and longs to return to its source. How can this be realized? The answer of the Bible is simply through Jesus Christ, our Lord. God came to us in the incarnation in atonement. He reconciled us to himself. And by faith and love, we enter and lay hold on him. You see, knowing Jesus is the only recompense. It's the only restitution for our sin stained souls. Knowing him is the only pathway to peace because knowing him puts every other aspect of our lives into its proper perspective. J.I. Packer says, once you become aware that the main business that you are here for is to know God, most of life's problems fall into place of their own accord. That may sound like an overly simplified statement, but actually it's true. As a society, we spend so much of our time and energy and resources searching for meaning in all kinds of places and through all sorts of methods and philosophies and often even complicated processes, constantly trying new things and entertaining new ideas to help us cope with the sometimes harsh realities of living in this world. And yet apart from knowing Christ, at best we're chasing after temporary distractions, which in the end can never fill the hollow void in every human being who does not know God. Do you know him? I pray that question haunts the minds of every unbeliever 
until unable to escape it, they must confront the reality of either knowing Christ or being lost in blind hopelessness forever. Because as long as we fool ourselves into believing that true hope can be found by pursuing anything other than Christ, we're hedging the outcome of our eternity on a fool's errand. Do you know him? Not do you know about him? That is a very different question. Most people today know something about Jesus, but that in no way means they actually know him. Do you know him? That question should be on the lips and at the ready of every believer as we encounter those who are searching for answers to life's biggest questions. Because there is no more important question for us to ask. And of course, I don't know that there's ever been a greater mind to grace this earth outside of Jesus himself or a better example of what we're talking about today than the Apostle Paul, formerly Saul, who while traveling on the ancient road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, verses 4 and 5, was confronted by that reality that there was indeed a living God and Saul did not know him. For as soon as he was blinded by a light from heaven, he heard the voice of Jesus asking him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Notice Saul didn't answer the question. Instead, he asked his own question, verse 5. Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Of course, Paul did come to know Jesus. And not only was his life forever changed, but he understood quite well that there was nothing more important that any human being could ever know than to know Jesus, which he teaches and he demonstrates then throughout his writings, including our text for today, where Paul focuses on the imperative of knowing Christ. So we're going to turn to Philippians chapter 3 and about the first 11 verses. We'll pick up the letter right where we left off last week as Paul impresses upon the church then and in, indeed the church today the essential value above all else of knowing Jesus Christ. We'll begin with the first three verses. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship God by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So at the onset of this third chapter, Paul takes this very hard stance with some very harsh words, obviously, toward the false teachers who had infiltrated some of his other churches and who he now fears may try to influence this Philippian church as well. So he's warning them against these wolves in sheep's clothing. And more specifically, he's referring to Judaizers, those who were Christian, uh, Jewish Christians, or at least those who followed the Mosaic law and who were insisting that the Gentile Christians must also submit to a strict adherence to that old covenant uh, Mosaic law, including circumcision, if they were to truly become Christians. In effect, they were telling the Gentile believers that they must become Jews in order to be saved. And the force with which Paul is rebuking these false teachers cannot be overstated. In fact, uh, the translation of these verses from the original ancient language into the English version that we have today really doesn't do, uh, do it justice. It doesn't represent the true intensity of Paul's scathing reprimand. Uh, when he calls these Jewish um, 
these Jews' false teachers, dogs, he's using a term that the Jews traditionally would use to describe the Gentiles because to the Jews, Gentiles were filthy. They were ritually unclean. So Paul turns the table here as he refers to these Jewish Christians as dogs or professing Christians as dogs. He says they're actually the unclean ones. You guys. The 19th century English theologian Joseph Lightfoot referring to this description by Paul of the Jews says it this way. The herds of dogs which prowl about eastern cities without a home and without an owner, feeding on the refuse and filth of the streets, quarreling among themselves and attacking the passerby, explain the applications of the image. Paul is ripping into these false teachers who he describes not only as dogs but as evildoers, he says, who mutilate the flesh with that phrase, those who mutilate the flesh, it's tain catatomain in the Greek. It's a play on words where Paul is referencing circumcision. He's making it abundantly clear that salvation is found in Christ alone. Not in the flesh, not in the law. We cannot earn our salvation. So Paul says on the contrary, we who are in Christ Jesus, he's talking about those of us who know him, we in truth are the circumcision. Which, if you think about it, seems like a really weird thing to say to people. But again, we have to look at the context. Paul is referencing Old Testament scripture here, which the Jews were very familiar with. Where in several places, in both uh, Jeremiah and Deuteronomy, the Old Testament writers explained to the Jews that physical circumcision was symbolic of a deeper commitment. Where they described it as a circumcision of the heart. That was looking forward to a time when God would identify his people by what was done in their hearts rather than what was done in their flesh. And so Paul is saying to these false teaching Jews, hey guys, that time has come. Which means these Gentiles who have come to know Christ are now the true circumcision. They are God's true people because they are in Christ. They actually know Christ. This was a biting rebuke of those who insisted that salvation must be earned. It's what they were taught their entire lives. That there's this list of boxes that must be checked off in order to be able to claim the status of one of God's chosen. But Paul was saying, listen to me, no matter what rules you follow, your religious behavior isn't good enough. By the way, it will never be good enough because you cannot earn your salvation. And although they may not be called Judaizers today, I'll tell you there are still plenty of religious people around who are more than happy to tell you how to earn your salvation, how to earn your way into heaven, how to, how to think if you want to be a true Christian, not because it's what scripture teaches us, but because it's what they happen to be passionate about. So you should be passionate about it too, or how dare you call yourself a Christian. It only takes about a nanosecond on Facebook to find professing believers shredding each other to pieces over disagreements and yet the basis of their arguments sometimes have nothing whatsoever to do with the gospel. So I'm not suggesting you call them dogs. We'll, we'll leave that to Paul. But I will say that when you look at the teachings and behavior of Jesus and Paul and Peter and James and John... There seemed to be an inexhaustible flow of grace and forgiveness and compassion and patience toward those who messed up, those who sinned, those who 
didn't always get it right. And I, for one, am so thankful for that. But there was one glaring exception with all of their teaching, and that was false teachers. Those who tried to promote their own pet doctrines or those who would attempt to divide the church by driving a wedge between the members. Jesus said, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. And then he went on to say, like diseased trees, they are cut down and thrown into the fire. Matthew 7, 15 and 19. In Matthew 18, he said, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. This was Jewish Jesus teaching the church. Those are heady words. There's no mistaking what he meant. Paul said, as for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he's self-condemned. Titus 3, 10, and 11. There just didn't seem to be a whole lot of tolerance for those in the church who were bent on pushing their own version of the gospel of Jesus Christ as the Judaizers were doing or for those who did anything to divide the body, which is why we've been so careful in this church from day one as to who we allow in this pulpit. We don't just bring in anyone and everyone who wants to teach. We get offers all the time from people who want to come speak at our church, and we go look into their websites and their books and the things that they're teaching. No, I'm sorry. We have to know that their message is the gospel of Jesus Christ and no other gospel and not any other twisted version of that gospel or you will not be brought in here to speak. We're also very careful and thoughtful about who we bring into leadership, particularly in teaching roles, even among those with lots of religious background. Because if what someone wants to teach is not sound doctrine, as the Apostle Paul refers to it, by the way, not me, then we wouldn't put that person in a teaching role. Because what ultimately comes from that is division in the church. And I say that not only because Scripture warns us about that over and over and over again, but because we've witnessed it more than once uh, firsthand over the past 21 years of vocational church ministry. We definitely don't have to agree on everything in order to be in fellowship with one another as a part of the church. But those who serve and lead through teaching must without question be together when it comes to the message that we're communicating. The unadulterated word of truth. The gospel of Jesus Christ or the church will eventually fragment from within because of the division that teaching contrary doctrines creates every time. Not to mention the fact that it leads people away from Christ. The great German pastor and theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, no man in the whole world can change the truth. One can only look for the truth, find it, and serve it. So we guard that very carefully here, just as Jesus and Paul and the others taught us to, which is the point that Paul's making here in his letter to the Philippians. He's saying, listen, guard the church. Don't allow anyone with any other version of the message that you've been taught to have influence over you because no matter how religious they may be, no matter how good their ministry resume may look, 
no matter how many boxes they can check off, no matter how passionate they may be about their message, religious behavior in and of itself is not the litmus test for the authenticity of a true believer, nor is it an automatic endorsement of their doctrine. Again, that's why I don't teach or preach from books other than the Bible. Don't misunderstand me. I read a lot of books. I read a lot of books from a lot of authors, and I learn a lot from them. Obviously, I reference them here in sermons often, right? We use them for resources. We use them for discussions and so on, and that's actually very good because the gift to write comes from God. And so we should benefit from those gifts that he's giving to us through others. But I'm telling you, as tempting as it may be for me to pull down a book from a popular author off of my shelf and preach a sermon series through it, I can't do it. Because our source for sound doctrine is not those other books. Our source for sound doctrine is the Bible, and that is what teaching pastors very clearly are instructed in Scripture to teach. 1 Timothy 4, 11 through 16. We won't read it this morning. 2 Timothy 2, 15. 2 Timothy 4, 2. Hebrews 13, 7. Colossians 3, 16. They all speak to that and many others. In Titus 1, Paul describes the requirements for local church pastors. And in verse 9, he says, He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. James says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. James 3.1. There's a tremendous amount of emphasis in Scripture, not only on the importance of teaching, but on teaching sound doctrine from the word of God without variation. Of course, Jesus himself said, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. John 8, 31 and 32. What sets us free? The truth sets us free. And how do we know the truth? We abide in his word, not in anyone else's word. We abide in his word alone. Then we are truly, Jesus says, his disciples, which again begs the question, are you one of his disciples? Do you know him? Because if you don't, it doesn't matter how religious you are because your religious behavior will never be good enough. We must know him. Let's keep reading as Paul goes even further. Verses four and five. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. So Paul says, just in case any of you thinks you have an impressive religious background, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day. The people of Israel. Paul says, I was a good Jewish boy, born into a good Jewish home, raised by good Jewish parents, who in accordance with the Old Testament, Old Covenant law, had me circumcised on the eighth day. 
And because under the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 17, Gentiles could also be circumcised and counted among God's people. There are a lot of scholars who believe that Paul may have been addressing some of them here, those who were proselytes, converts to Judaism. So when he says circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, he was saying, hey, fellas, just in case you think you're something because of your religious background, I was a good Jew long before any of you. Because I've been a part of Israel's race from birth. And then he says of the tribe of Benjamin, okay? Gentiles could become members of Israel only in general. But Paul's lineage, his family origins could be traced back through the annals of the Benjamite tribe. The favored tribe. The tribe that produced Israel's first king from whom Paul received his namesake at birth, Saul. It was the tribe blessed by Moses. It was the tribe in whose territory the holy city itself resided. So Paul's religious pedigree was second to none, which is why he refers to himself as a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, he says, a Pharisee, a member of this religious sect, which was utterly given to the study and implementation of the law. So Paul makes it abundantly clear. Hey, just in case you think your background is impressive, You boys ain't got nothing on me. In other words, Paul says, no matter what your religious upbringing is, your religious upbringing isn't good enough. Because even when we claim a religious heritage second to none, Paul still did not know God. Not until he was called by Jesus Christ. It wasn't enough to grow up in religion. For Paul to belong to God, Paul had to know God. Right? Showing up at church... Even participating in the ministries through the church, that's all great. We're commanded in Scripture to do that. But that alone cannot save us. In fact, all of that is worthless if we do not know Him personally. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, God says, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. You see, when we stand before Christ, after this life has run its course, he isn't going to ask us which church we attended, or how many people in our family were preachers, or which denomination we were a member of. Our religious upbringing is of zero value to our eternity If we do not know him. Do you know him? That is the only question that really matters when it comes to our eternity. It's why he was able to say to the thief on the cross who had lived his life as a criminal. Not religious or upstanding. Not with a good track record for righteousness or strict adherence to religious rules. This was a man by his own admission who deserved to be crucified. And yet Jesus was able to say to him in those final moments of that man's wretched life, today, you will be with me in paradise. Why? Because in those final moments, that man had come to know Jesus Christ. Do you know him? If not, you can doesn't matter how you've lived your life up to this point. 
Doesn't matter how religious you've been, how many religious boxes you can check off the list. Doesn't matter how far away from him you've been, as long as there is breath in your lungs, you can know Jesus Christ. Paul learned it firsthand, and he wanted to make sure that every religious person knew that no matter what claim they could make, if knowing Jesus wasn't one of them, then they had no reason to boast. And then he continues, verse 6. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So Paul says, I didn't just behave religiously, and I wasn't just raised religiously, But according to my religion, my entire life has been characterized by good religious deeds. Under the law, Paul says, I was blameless. And even at that, Paul says, wasn't enough. He says, I don't care how religious your behavior is. I don't care how religious your upbringing is. It doesn't even matter how many good religious deeds you've committed. Because if you don't know Jesus, your religious, your good religious deeds aren't good enough. Because not only was Paul a Pharisee, but he was also far more than your average, everyday, run-of-the-mill Pharisee. In his zeal for the law, Paul had an undying commitment to stamping out the emerging Christian movement of the first century before he knew Christ. And so Paul uh, could claim to have done far more than most, maybe more than anyone else when it came to his religious deeds. And when he says, I was blameless, he's referring to his uh, conduct and observance of the Torah. Paul kept the law to the letter with all of its rules and ceremonies and strict codes. His religious deeds were head and shoulders above even the most devout Pharisees. And yet Paul says even that wasn't enough. Because to try and obey God's law without actually knowing God isn't good enough. Even my good deeds, Paul says, weren't good enough. And listen, I'll just tell you... Ours won't amount to anything either if we do not know Jesus Christ. And of course, that doesn't stop us from trying, trying to earn our way into the family of God by our deeds alone. And yet at the end of the age, Jesus says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? To cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name. It sounds like a lot of good deeds. And then I will declare, Jesus says to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So what matters on that day? Even if we do many mighty works in his name throughout our life, on that final day, Jesus says we're cast out of his presence if despite all of our good deeds, we didn't actually know him. And by the way, if we don't know him, even our good works aren't good. After describing all of these wonderful deeds, prophesying, casting out demons, many mighty works, he says, Jesus calls them workers of lawlessness. In other words, even your good deeds aren't good if you don't know me. Which is exactly what Paul says in the next five verses. After describing all of this good religious behavior and all of his good religious upbringing and all of his good religious deeds, he says in verses 7 through 11, 
But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So Paul's entire paradigm for what he considers gain and loss in this world has been completely shattered. In fact, it has been perfectly reversed. What was formerly considered gain, his religious behavior, his religious upbringing, his religious deeds, have now been moved into the loss column. Jesus Christ, the one whom Paul persecuted with all of the religious zeal that he could muster, the one whom Paul would have said was the very definition of loss if you followed him, he's now been moved into the gain column. So that now everything that Paul once saw as gain, he now considers to be rubbish. And the, the Greek word that Paul uses for rubbish here is the word skubalon, which was used to refer to any kind of refuse, including the excrement of animals, anything that was worthless or detestable. Why would Paul refer to all of his lifetime of good works that way? It's for the same reason that Jesus called all of the mighty works done in his name by certain people works of lawlessness. Because anything and everything that we try to do or become apart from Christ, we're trying to accomplish by our own righteousness. And at the end of the day, anything and everything that we can ever produce by our own righteousness is the equivalent of rubbish, refuse. It is all worthless if we do not know Jesus Christ. And so I'm asking you, do you know him? Not asking you where you go to church. Not asking you whether or not you were raised in a Christian home. Not asking you how many ministries you're involved in or how many wonderful things you've done in his name in your lifetime. I'm simply asking you, do you know him? Because if you don't, you can. In fact, no matter how much good you've done or no matter how wretched your life may have been right up until this moment, either way, you can experience the surpassing worth of knowing him in this moment. No matter how your life has gone up to now, you can gain Christ and be found in him. It's a work of grace that he does in us through our faith in him which actually is also something that he does in us he gives us the faith that we need to believe in him so that we may have absolutely no grounds on which we can boast in ourselves and so the first time that Paul was in Philippi he and Silas were arrested and thrown into prison and after praying and singing hymns all night the Lord shook the prison and the doors flew open, and when the jailer awoke, he was fearful that the prisoners had escaped, so afraid that he was about to kill himself. Paul reassures him that everyone was present and accounted for, and so the jailer rushes into where Paul and Silas were, not knowing Jesus Christ, but he was ready to believe. And so he asked them, sirs, what must I do 
to be saved. And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And if you know the story, you know that he was saved. After Paul and Silas did what? It says, spoke the word of the Lord to him about Jesus. After they shared the true doctrine of the gospel of Jesus Christ, he and all of his household believed and were saved. And Paul baptized them all that very night as a testimony to the fact that they now knew Jesus Christ. And of that Philippian jailer, verse 34 says that he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. You see, we, we can act like Christians. We can grow up like Christians. We can even do the things that Christians do. We can know all about God. But none of that means anything worth anything if we do not know him. So I'm asking you this morning, do you know him? Let's pray.